So David hid in the field, and when the new moon feast came, the king sat down to eat. He sat in his customary place by the wall, opposite Jonathan, and Abner sat next to Saul, but David's place was empty. Saul said nothing that day, for he thought, something must have happened to David to make him ceremonially unclean. Surely he is unclean. But the next day, the second day of the month, David's place was empty again. Then Saul said to his son Jonathan, Why hasn't the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered, David earnestly asked me for permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, Let me go, because our family is observing a sacrifice in the town, and my brother has ordered me to be there. If I have found favour in your eyes, let me go to see my brothers. That is why he has not come to the king's table. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. Jonathan got up from the table in a fierce anger. On that second day of the feast, he did not eat because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. In the morning, Jonathan went out to the field for his meeting with David. He had a small boy with him, and he said to the boy, Run and find the arrows I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the boy came to the place where Jonathan's arrow had fallen, Jonathan called out after him, Isn't the arrow beyond you? Then he shouted, Hurry, go quickly, don't stop. The boy picked up the arrow and returned to his master. The boy knew nothing about all this. Only Jonathan and David knew. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said, Go, carry them back to town. After the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between you and me, and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left, and Jonathan went back to the town. Thanks, Michelle. Uh, good morning, everybody. Hope you're well. Uh, we've got a big job this morning. I've got a big job this morning, so in a second I'm going to ask you to help me with it. Why do I feel it's extra big this morning? Well, as we continue in our Call to Follow 1 Samuel series today, I'm going to share with you a little bit about my actual favourite non-divine character in the entire Bible. So whilst I'm familiar with him, love him, that means that I feel that my words will always fail to convey the admiration and the meaning and the feeling that I receive from 1 Samuel chapter 20. So I think it should be here, and I'm feeling like it's going to be here, so that's hard for me. The other thing I need to do this morning is introduce you to one of the most 
It's short, but problematic words in our vocabulary. So those are two significant challenges to help me out. I'm going to do what uh, Jerry Maguire once did and say, help me, help you, help me, help you. Uh, so I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. Uh, these questions are just for you. You never, ever have to share your answer with another living soul. Uh, there's going to be no quiz afterwards. This is just to help you to explore. Uh, let me say some other things. Some of us get asked a question and we'll agonize over, what's the right answer? Just go with your gut. Uh, if you go to bed tonight and you change your mind, no one will know. It's fine. Whatever. But have a go. Have a go. And where your gut goes this morning is probably not a bad place to go. So ask yourself this. What's something that you'd really be loath to let out of your sight? What's something that you, you, you either won't or would be loath to let out of your sight? Have a think about that. Yes, that first thing that came to mind is probably a good thing. You can change it later. It's all right. Something that you're loath to let out of your sight. Okay, let me ask you another question. What's something that either you'd be, yeah, what's something that you'd be loath to let someone else have control of? Or maybe when someone else does try to take control of this thing, you get a little defensive or a little angry or a little upset. What's something that you're loathe for someone else to have control of? Something ticking in your brain? Good, okay. Thank you for those who are nodding. That helps me. Um, how about this one? What are you most proud of? And if you're sensitive to the language of proud, that's okay. Maybe what are you most grateful for? What's the thing that takes pride of place in the U trophy cabinet? What's the thing in your story that you esteem highest? All right, I'll give you one more, one more question, and then I'll do some work. What something, can be a thing or a, a circumstance or a situation, a feeling, whatever, what's something you dream of obtaining? What's something where you're like, if only, gee, I wish, I'm gonna, what's something you dream of obtaining? Now, I'm happy for you to multitask. If those keep ticking in your brain while I'm talking to you, that's fine. I won't even know. As I said, those questions are questions for you. But if some of those answers could be stay in your brain somewhere or on your phone or whatever, they might come in handy a little bit later on as we keep talking with one another. So as uh, Michelle read for us, we found this guy, David, sitting in a field. And so it's probably worth our while doing a little bit of backtrack and work out the story so far. We've been in 1 Samuel. We've been seeing a God who leads his people, his people who are called to follow. We've seen a God who leads through different kinds of offices, through priests, through prophets, and in our time now, through kings. Uh, we met a guy called Eli. We've met a guy called Samuel. And we've been spending a little bit of time with a king called Saul. And today, as we continue in the story of the king's side of things, we're going to be in something of a state of transition, but it's a long transition and we won't get it done today nor next week. It'll take a while as kings uh, transfer power. So let me back us up a little bit and see if I can bring us up from where we were to where we are today in 1 Samuel 20. So I'm going to jump us back to 1 Samuel 15. 
And verse 27 kind of captures what's going on, and it may even appear on the screen. And my apologies, I think I might have cut some of it short. So I'm going to flick back in my Bible. But here is where we see the kingdom torn away. You see, Samuel, the prophet who once anointed Saul and said, you'll be God's leader, you'll be the leader of his people, you'll be the prince, the ruler. Well, now he's got news for Saul. As Samuel is leaving Saul, Saul catches the end of his robe and tore it. Now, throughout this book, clothing matters, and I'll show you another example later on. As he grabs it, it tears. So what happens after that, and it won't be on the screen, but I'll read it for you. Samuel, who's just had his jersey torn, says to Saul, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbours, one better than you. That's got to be shocking news, right? You're Saul and the guy Samuel who speaks God's own words, that's why he's a prophet, the guy who anointed you, or we use the language of Christed you, which means to anoint, the one who said you're now going to be the leader, has just said news from God Just as my robe tore, God has torn this away. You will no longer be God's leader. What might be a next action for someone like Saul? Maybe in the same way that when God said, you're going to lead, he moved towards leading, reluctantly, but nonetheless moved towards it, you might now get a box and pack up your desk and leave because you just got told you're no longer in this role. Well, that's not Saul's response. Uh, God has said through Samuel, you're no longer going to be leading my people. Saul, rather than steps away, grabs on tighter. He's going to grab on very firm. And we've been watching this man uh, take more and more levels of ownership of God's kingdom and treat it as if it were his own. To rub salt into the wound, Samuel also says, look, not only is God taking this away from you, he's going to give it to one of your neighbours, someone better than you. And that's exactly what happens in 1 Samuel 16, verse 13, as you'll see on the screen. Samuel, just as he did with Saul, takes oil and he anointed David in the presence of his brothers before others. And from that day, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And then Samuel left. Just as he had anointed or Christed Saul, that anointing is now removed from Saul and it's given to a new man, a man called David. And David is now God's choice for who will lead God's people. How many times have you seen in a movie when there are two people who are meant to be king? Does that normally end peacefully? Nah. Expect an action scene in this book. Because now we've got two people who have received an anointing. One's had it removed, and his response is to grab harder. Now we have another one who's anointed. His name is David. He is God's choice. Well, as we move forward into 1 Samuel 17, there's a very very famous scene of the David and Goliath battle. Uh, Goliath, the champion of the Philistines, and represents everything that is Philistine, superior technology, more powerful army, big, strong, powerful... And David comes forward. Now remember, he's just a shepherd boy at this point. 
Uh, yes, he's been anointed, but he's still uh, young. And he comes forward with a, a small sling and some stones and looks like Israel, little and uh, mild in the presence of a superpower, but led by God. And so as he comes forward, it seems that uh, Saul, looking at this, adopts, you know that old saying, if you can't beat him, join him? Well, Saul's so pumped up that his attitude is, if you can't beat him, recruit him. If you can't beat him, get him to join you. So what does Saul do? Okay, David volunteers to represent Israel in the Thunderdome and fight against Goliath. So Saul says, here's what I'll do. I'll put him in my jersey. He puts David in his armour. Now you might think, oh, what a nice guy. He lent him his very own armour. Not quite. This is more like if you think of a football player with his number on the back and his name. So on the back of Saul's armour, imagine King Saul, son of Kish, number 22. Everyone is up in the hills. They see a man go forward bravely to face Goliath in the name of the Lord. There goes King Saul, son of Kish, number 22, our king. And Saul knows, so if David wins, everyone's going to say, oh, I won. Of course, David puts on the gear and says, I can't go like this. I can't move in it. And I suspect there's a double meaning here. Not only is the armour ill-fitting, the armour's ill-fitting. It's ill-fitting that he's not used to moving and all this, this stuff. But it's ill-fitting because Saul has misunderstood something. For Saul, the kingdom is his, the battle is his, and Goliath is his enemy. The Philistines are his enemy. As David speaks at this battle, he says, Who is this person who comes against the armies of the Lord? Not against my armies, not against Saul's army, but the army of the Lord. In Saul's mind, this is my fight. Go as my representative. In David's mind, this is the Lord's fight, and I go as his servant. It's a totally different approach. I can't go like this. It doesn't work for me. I don't fight for you. I fight for the Lord. Well, uh, he doesn't fit in his armour, and in the next scene, 1 Samuel 18, 6-9, Saul realises that not only does this guy not fit in my armour, he doesn't fit in my shadow either. You see, Saul has recruited David. David's become a very, very helpful general in his army, winning lots of battles. And that goes well, because he's serving a purpose. Until this day. They return from war against the Philistines. It's gone really well. The cheerleaders come out. And they're cheering as everyone comes back. And here's what they say. Uh, they're singing and dancing, as, you, as you'll see on the next part of the reading. Um, they're singing and dancing with joyful songs. But they say this. Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Now, that's not a scoreboard that's pleasing to a guy who's grabbing onto the kingdom. He goes on and says, what more can they do but give David the king? They only mentioned thousands of me, tens of thousands of him. Next, I want to give him my kingdom. Your kingdom, Saul. He's grabbing on very tight to this kingdom and now he's worried that, yeah, even the people are going to tear it away and give it to David because they ascribe to him a greater victory than mine. This guy doesn't fit in my armour. 
and he doesn't fit in my shadow. By chapter 19, he's quite clear, David doesn't fit in my plan. David does not fit in my plan for my kingship or my kingdom. And so the order is given. 1 Samuel chapter 19, verses 1 to 2. Saul told his son, Jonathan, my favorite non-divine guy in the entire Bible, kill David. Eliminate him. Wipe him out. This guy does not fit my plan. This guy is not part of the agenda. Let's get rid of David. And from here on, David will be running and eluding and whilst trying to serve, he's got to try and preserve his life because Saul, who is grasping for his kingdom, recognises that David has been anointed, that David didn't fit in his armour, doesn't fight for you, Saul, that David doesn't fit in your shadow, he's emerging larger, the people can see it. Uh, so Saul wants to kill him and David is trying to elude being killed. Jonathan helps David, helps him escape helps him get away. And the scene we come to in 1, chapter, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 20 is a very awkward dinner scene at the house of Saul. So here we are at dinner at the time of the new moon and the king's chatting with everyone, looks up and he goes, David's seat's empty. And in noticing David's seat's empty, he realises that Jonathan has helped David to be away because Jonathan has helped David. He's given him permission, given him leave to be away so that he'll be safe from Saul who wants to kill him. And it's at 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 30 to 31, that the big issue that must be wrestled with for Saul, for David, for Jonathan and for you and I today emerges. Here's what happens at this awkward dinner party. Chapter 30, verse to 30, sorry, verse 30 to 31. Saul's anger fled up at Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman. And you see where a more recent translation might have come from, as commonly used in the States. You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? Note verse 31 very carefully. As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. Let's take a minute to think this through. Saul gripping tightly to his kingdom and terrified that as the Lord has taken it from his hands and as the people would now give it to David, as his son now doesn't seem to care, for Saul who is desperate to keep ownership of what is his, he now appeals to his son. He says, do you not understand, Jonathan, who you are? You are my heir. Do you not see this power? Do you remember back in 1 Samuel chapter 8 where we heard what a king will do? A king will take, take your crops, take your taxes, take your, your, your daughters, take your sons, take everything. He'll have the cream, he'll have the best. Well, Saul's been doing that. He's aware of it. He says, Jonathan, don't you realize that's all meant to be yours someday? You're my heir. This is going to be yours. But there's a rock in the road right now, Jonathan. His name is David. He's the son of Jesse. And as long as that guy lives... He doesn't fit in my armour. He won't fit in yours. He doesn't fit in our shadow. He is 
problem. He is enemy of the state. As long as he lives, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Your kingdom. Saul has moved to such a space of ownership of God's kingdom that he was set to be prince or leader of, that he considers it his own, and he considers it the future property of his offspring. Your kingdom will never be established. Now, would we pause for a moment and put ourselves in the shoes of Jonathan? Has there ever been a guy who had the world at his feet like Jonathan? Here is the nation said to be blessed by God and owned by God and loved by God, even if their understanding of this is a little shonky. Jonathan, you could lead it. Jonathan, these people who kind of wandered out of the wilderness now and are becoming a kingdom, a nation that your dad has led, you get that. Jonathan, you'll always be secure. You'll always be rich. Jonathan, the woman you want is the woman you'll have. Jonathan, the power you want is the power you'll have. Jonathan, even the arguments you'll lose because you're king, you still win. Jonathan, you'll command the armies. Jonathan, you'll be the commander of the army that's been defeating the mighty Philistines and even their champion Goliath. Jonathan, the world is your oyster and the world is at your feet. And do you not understand that as long as the son of David, the son of Jesse, the man David lives, you will never be on your feet. You will never be established and your kingdom will be in jeopardy for there is a rival. Now, sons haven't proved terribly good in this book thus far. Eli's sons were jerks. Even the great Samuel's sons were jerks. Jonathan's going to restore your hope in what a son can be because here comes his response. 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 40 to 41. Let me read it and recap. So Jonathan has organised this meeting with David in the dark in the wilderness with a signal. So now he's going to come to David and this is what happens. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy, the boy who was with him, and said, go carry them back to the town. After the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept, but David wept the most. The first thing Jonathan does in his approach to David is discards his weapons. Takes off his sword, removes his bow, takes his dagger away, gives it to his boy, his servant, and says, run these back to the town. What's going on here? Now imagine the movie. Imagine if this was a movie. Two potential kings meet in the dark in the wilderness. They've always been friends. And they come together and the music's kind of nice. And they embrace and they hug. And then what happens in the movie? Of course, Jonathan pulls out his little dagger. The music note changes. Jonathan's eyes go red. 
that he's now king. That happens in movies because that has happened in reality. Maybe not quite as dramatically as I just portrayed it, but it happens. Power corrupts. Jonathan, here's my weapons. David needs to know that even though my father has put a death penalty on his head, that he is enemy of the state, David needs to know my friendship is true, our covenant is real, I am no threat to this man at all. I do not come to take his kingdom, that's not my intention. So he gets rid of his weapons. Or the movie could go like this, David and Jonathan, David's always been so noble and good and Great guy, and you know, I can't fight in this armor. And you know, Saul, I'm your servant. Let me play a harp for you. I don't know how to play harp. Oh, like that. Um, same scene. They come together, they embrace. Music note changes. David! <laughs> Tops Jonathan. Note changes, eyes go red, bad thing, power corrupts. That's a real threat. What happens with Jonathan? Takes his weaponry off, sends it away, comes to David. I totally entrust my safety to you, David. This covenant is real. I trust that you are good, that you are for me. In fact, you want to test the theory, you can read on and see that that's exactly what Jonathan's going to do. May I go in, go in peace, may I, or my household be protected by you. I entrust me and my offspring to you, into the generations to you, David. So he drops the weaponry and goes un, in a truly unguarded moment to David, entrusting himself to God's anointed. Amazing how David responds. David doesn't respond by going, glad you showed up. When are you and your dad moving out of the house that should be mine now? I'm the anointed. King has been torn away. Let's face it, I win the battles. David acknowledges Jonathan. It's not lost on David. Despite it being his friend, despite his anointing, David very much acknowledges this is the reigning king's heir. When was the last time you bowed? to anybody, took a knee. David comes out from behind the rock and bows three times, face to the ground. He acknowledges, this is royalty before me. It's not lost on David. Jonathan is the man with the world at his feet, and David respects him in that role. David bows three times and he acknowledges Jonathan as the king's son. In a moment of beautiful, mutual uh, grief sharing, the men hug, kiss and weep. They both are grieved at this situation. Jonathan at how his friend David has been treated. David at the necessary distance and divide that's being put between them. And as they weep, it's David who weeps even more. This is not an easy David sort of thinking, well, once we get rid of the, the, the pleasantries and whatever, sooner enough I'll be king. And you know. This is costly for David. He's a noble man. He loves Jonathan. He's grieved, perhaps, that Jonathan won't be king. But he's God's choice. They hug, they weep, David weeps more. And then perhaps what is just one of the reasons I love this passage and Jonathan so much, they kiss. Let me very say very quickly, because it's only worthy of a very quickly, this has been 
This part of Scripture has been used at times to try and push an agenda that simply does not belong in the Scriptures. This has been used by some who would like to affirm a form of sinful sexual relationship that God does not affirm. And any suggestion that this is some kind of a sexual relationship between Jonathan and David is just plain silly. And I will not give the comment any more comment than that. It's not worthy of it. It's just poor exegesis. Here, we have a beautiful moment of intimate friendship. They hug, they weep, there is a kiss. But not just intimate friendship, amazing godliness. Do you remember when Samuel made Saul the anointed one? He poured oil on him and he kissed him. His kiss was a sign of revering God's choice, a pledge of allegiance, a commitment to follow. That's what Samuel, the present judge and leader of God's people, did. Now Jonathan, the man with the world at his feet, pledges to God's anointed king the same allegiance, reverence, and he kisses him. Friends, make no mistake that when Jonathan kissed David, he was kissing his own kingdom goodbye. When Jonathan kissed David, he was potentially kissing goodbye, something he'd never let out of his sight. When Jonathan kissed David, he was kissing goodbye, control of elements of his life. When Jonathan kissed David, he was kissing goodbye, some of the things that might have taken pride of place in his trophy cabinet. When Jonathan kissed David, he might have kissed goodbye some of the dreams of his heart, some of the things that he aspired to, some of the things that anyone would aspire to. When Jonathan kissed David, he acknowledged God's king and he surrendered his own kingdom, however big or small that might have been. This is the language of Psalm 2, which warns all the kings of the earth who may conspire against God's anointed king, first Saul, then David, and as we know it, ultimately Jesus, and says, kiss the son for his wrath can flare up and he can destroy you. Pledge your allegiance to him and receive his salvation. Put yourself weapons off and entrust yourself fully to his care. Kiss the son, revere him, acknowledge him, and kiss your kingdom goodbye. Well, that's what Jonathan does. I esteem this man because he's just so gifted, so talented, so Gutsy, I love that. Let's go fight those guys. Or if the Lord gives us, yeah, Lord, okay, let's get up there, let's fight. I love him. World at his feet. But he'd rather choose God's king than a kingdom of his own. This guy just gets in the way I pray I might get it one day. What might be behind Jonathan's response and his action? I suspect a fundamental difference between he and his father. His father talked of you and your kingdom. His father said, I must be avenged. Set up a monument to me. This is my enemy. Jonathan, what's different? I think Jonathan knew it was never my kingdom to have. It was always God's kingdom that he entrusted me, entrusted my dad, or entrusted Samuel to lead. But it was never my kingdom, never my kingdom to have. 
Perhaps he signaled that most powerfully back in chapter 18 when he gave his own princely robe to David. And so here's the troublesome word that I invite you to reflect upon. The troublesome word is my. The troublesome word is my. Taking ownership where I may only be custodian. Taking possession where I'm meant to be steward. Now, I invite you through the course of the day or the course of the week to maybe explore some of those things you answered my opening questions to and work out where does my fit with them? How should my fit with them? It might be a challenging exercise. How does Jesus' ownership fit with them? As I brainstormed with myself, I thought, what are some of the things that I should speak about this morning where my is messed up with a little bit? I think one of the profound ways in our time today is my identity. Is it my identity? It's funny how in the ancient times, Saul is Saul, son of Kish. Joshua is Joshua, son of Nun. Even Jesus. Isn't he Joseph, the carpenter's son? So often I might treat my identity like it's mine to manipulate and change through the vocation I have, the, the, uh, the people I mix with, my sexual orientation, my gender preference, uh, my sport, all kinds of things. But is it mine to own? Friends, I'm going to say that when Psalm 24 tells me the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, suggests that even... My identity is not my identity. It's the identity that God has called me to and that he ascribes for me and that he fashions with me and he invites me to participate in. And so it may not be mine to manipulate in the way that we're commonly told it is. When I kiss the Son, the Lord Jesus, what do I say of my kingdom, my treasury of my kingdom, my money? Whose is that? Is that mine or is that his? Am I owner or custodian? You want to know what some of my answers to the opening bit were? Want to know what gets me? Time. I hate it when someone else controls my time. I lose my mind. I can't handle it. it. Just messes with me. If someone else controls my time or messes with my time or doesn't treat my time valuable or valuably or I have to surrender control of it to another... But is it my time? I didn't choose when it started. I have no intention of choosing when it ends. It's God's time that he's called me to steward and be custodian of. My body, my choice. No, you are not your own. You were bought. Not my body. God's body that he's made me custodian of to look after well. My God, my Jesus. There's a song in that. And a fair comment, but again, trouble with the word my. What happens when Jesus or God reveals himself in his word with something that pushes hard against the concept you had of God? Ooh, I don't like to think of God like that. Well, best you change your mind because God likes to think of himself like that. It's awful when God gets out of the little cage that we make for him. My pet God, that's called an idol. The God we worship is the God who reveals himself in Scripture and he's not mine. 
It's actually not my Jesus in a possessive sense. I don't own him. He owns me. I am his. He's not mine in the same way. My church, well, it's a church. It's actually not my church, and it's not your church. It's Jesus Christ's church, and because I belong to him, he likes to keep his stuff together. So he gathers those that he has possessed together. Doesn't matter if I laid the foundation stone. Doesn't matter if I paid for it. Doesn't matter if I led the committee that made it happen. Doesn't matter if I lead to this day. It's not mine. It's his. My people. (laughs) I have to correct myself on this all the time and some of the ministry team will tell you that I'm a pain in the neck as I talk to them. Because sometimes, because we love you and because God has entrusted us to be shepherds of Christ's flock, sometimes we talk about our people. You're not our people. For the youth leaders, they're not my boys or my girls. I get the sentiment. But be careful with my. They're Christ's people. They're Christ's boys, Christ's girls, to whom he has entrusted precious care of what is his. Custodian, not owner. Well, at least I can have my choices. You get to choose. But are they all your choices? Or haven't we been talking about the ark brought out Israel rather than Israel brings out the ark and so we ask God, God, where would you have me? Where would you lead me? Help me to be in line with your spirit. Not my choices. Christ's choices. And I try to discern through reading and prayer and fellowship where is God leading me today? How can I get on board with his plan? And as we talk about choice... One of the choices of history that I love was one made by a young and tremendously talented college student, handsome man, youth pastor in the 50s, a man called Jim Elliott. And Jim Elliott, you may have heard of, was a man who wanted to go as a missionary to Ecuador to an untouched uh, native tribe who were known for their violence. They killed everyone who encountered them. And people said, Jim, don't go. They'll kill you. He said, God's called me to this. They will kill you. And he famously says, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to secure what he cannot lose. You see, Jim Elliot understood what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 16, verses 24 to 25. Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, kiss it goodbye, take up their cross and follow me, kiss the son. Now, this might sound like a challenging word, and I suspect it is. I'm working through it, I expect you to work through it too. The lordship of Jesus, when we kiss the son and surrender our own lordship, is that's a humbling thing to do. But do you know what happens when you kiss the son? Not only do you receive his lordship, but there is something else of mine that I surrender. My righteousness. What's righteousness? It's that not guilty verdict. See, so often I want to come before God, before you, before myself, and go, not a bad guy. The offer of Jesus to each and every one of us, along with his lordship, is salvation. Where he says, if you will only kiss your concept of righteousness, your achievement, your ability, your standing as not a bad guy, 
if you kiss that goodbye and come to me in faith and kiss me, receive me, put your trust in me, take off the weaponry and the armor in an unguarded moment, surrender yourself to my care, well, let me show you, my weeping is more, for I died on the cross for you, I paid your debt, I rose to new life, and all that is mine, I will welcome you into my kingdom, you will be a part of that salvation, peace, and all the things Jonathan asked David for will be yours. You will receive me as your Lord, and as Lord I am not a taskmaster, as Lord I am a saving saviour who brings peace and fullness and wholeness and all things greater than anyone thought of in their opening four questions. And so this morning, brothers and sisters, as I wrap up another Shane Dirk sermon that went way too long, I ask you, what do you want to embrace? Do you want to embrace the answers, be they the ones you came up with earlier or the ones you will later, of those opening four questions or something like them? Or do you want to turn today, kiss the Son, receive his salvation, and walk in his Lordship? Let me pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus. We thank you that he is the anointed king. We thank you that he is the one who is perfect. He is the one who doesn't fall where Saul fell. He is the one who doesn't fall where even David fell. He is perfect and he reigns forever. Father God, like Jonathan, so often we feel the world at our feet. There is a kingdom that calls for us. There is a kingdom that we may have or be just on the brink of getting. Father God, we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit for each and every one of us now, we might kiss the Son. We might surrender ourselves to the Lord Jesus. We might receive his salvation, his lordship over all that we will ever be, over all that we've ever been. Father God, help us to surrender our whole unguarded selves to him. For he has surrendered and given his whole self for us. And so, Father God, I pray for each of us, by faith, we might receive him as Lord, follow him as our Saviour, and that we might truly kiss the Son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.